millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The shelves of high street bookstores are full of self-help books, which purport to teach us to be happy. They tell us to follow our dreams and live in the now, offering various forms of advice on how to find personal fulfillment. Few, if any, though, talk seriously about morality or associate the happy life with the moral life. For Immanuel Kant, the 18th century philosopher, happiness and morality went hand in hand. One has a duty in his mind to be both happy and moral. As Alice Pinheiro Walla, assistant professor of philosophy at Trinity College Dublin explains to Unthinkable Today. In the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals, Kant uses four examples of duty to illustrate his thinking. And these include the example of the gout sufferer, a person who is regularly afflicted by gout because she can't or won't stick to the correct diet. To Kant, one of the primary duties you have is a duty to look after yourself or to live healthily. I started by asking Pinheiro Walla to explain this duty as Kant saw it. This is a very interesting view because there is a duty to look after yourself, but the rationale, the reason why you have your duty is actually a rational nature. So it's the fact that you understand morality, that you can be under obligation and you can have duties and rights. Right? This is what gives you a special status. And you have a duty to look after yourself then, insofar as Kant acknowledges that we are not only our rational nature, so we are also animal nature. So we are unified beings. So it's a, it's a holistic approach the human being actually and I think that hasn't been realized um, out there so people tend to think about Kant as being very stern and dogmatic and having this this very stiff notion of the human being and morality actually the duties towards oneself as an animal being are there so there is this obligation but the reason for this is not because um, there is any reason that you should care about your body just like that. It's because this is the body of a being who has a rationality, who has dignity, and you have to look after it, compatible in a way that is compatible with your moral status. So this is the reason why you should look well after yourself. And so there's an assumption of dignity in the human person, an assumption of value in, in, in human life. Is it just specifically human life? Uh, Kant applies this to, by the way. That's a very good question. Actually not. If there are other beings that have that um, ability to understand morality, to conceive those uh, requirements of reciprocity, to have these rational abilities, so they would have the same status as human beings. As a matter of fact, we just don't know other species. So it's not something about the human species. It's about the rational, the rational status of human beings. 
and and Kant discusses this in the context of the gout sufferer. He, he suffered gout himself. But you might explain why he used that example and what was he getting at? Yes, this is an example that comes out in the famous work, The Groundwork to the Metaphysics of Morals. And there are four examples, actually, um, and they mean to illustrate different types of duties. So you have duties to others, duties to yourself, you have perfect duties to others and yourself, and you have imperfect duties, so types of duties. And this example, I think, uh, and I write about it, I think has been misunderstood. So um, Kant talks about this person, he is sick, uh, he suffers from the gout of the foot, and he realizes, you know, um, if I try to be healthy, if I uh, observe all the restraints on my diet, I cut down on my pleasures, things will not really improve in terms of pleasure for me. So he realizes that actually in terms of a balance of pleasures, it makes sense to indulge in what he can, and suffer afterwards, rather than going, reducing his, the, the, the pleasure in his life and then aiming at a end which lies in health that is actually not promising a lot of enjoyment in life. And Kant concludes that this is actually rational for the gout sufferer to think like that, because his conception of practical, uh, empirical practical rationality is actually hedonistic. So morality comes into the picture to compensate that. So he thinks that as long as we have an interest in our overall well-being, our happiness, um, we are motivated to pursue it. Right? Um, but when this motivation is gone, perhaps because we are too depressed, or perhaps like the gout sufferer, happiness does not promise anymore what it used to promise in terms of expected satisfaction, um, then morality has to kick in and remind you, you cannot reduce yourself just to enjoyment. You have to treat your animal nature in a way that is compatible with your dignity. So it's reminding you that you are not only pleasure, you are more than that. And as Kant explain in his view, I mean, what constitutes harm to oneself in the sense that he talks a bit about drunkenness. You could yeah. see an application here around suicide, that that would be immoral. Um, but could it extend to nearly any pursuit that maybe impedes one developing fully intellectually, morally? Uh, it could apply to a very broad range of activities. Mm -hmm. So he does think, first of all, instrumentally in terms of what do I need to preserve in myself or cultivate in myself so that I can become a moral agent. So, of course, you want to be in good health. You want to have a certain degree of happiness and enjoyment in your life because a person who is dissatisfied, who is needy in her uh, physical um, needs, she will be more tempted to violate the moral law, as Kant puts it, right, in his jargon. So um, there is this instrumental view, but there is also the view when he talks in the in a book called uh, The Metaphysics of Morals. He talks about duties to oneself, 
And he does think that we owe ourselves a certain degree of enjoyment, right? For, because we are animal beings who, who want to be happy, right? We should not take that away from our lives. Of course, subordinated to morality, as long as we are not doing anything wrong, why should we not enjoy, enjoy ourselves? So this is his criticism, for instance, of the miser. He thinks, of course, the miser is not giving money to others, is not being beneficent, is not being generous. But the problem with the miser is not that he's being egoistic, that he's neglecting his or her duties to others. The point of the miser is that uh, he is violating a duty to the self by denying the enjoyment of life that he could have had. He has the means to it, but he denies himself this enjoyment. And Kant thinks that this is a violation of what you owe to ourselves. So there is something not virtuous in this kind of behavior. Right? So we all deserve enjoyment in our lives, right? <laughs> Agreed. Um, I, I mean, some, some, I think you've written yourself, and that, that have characterized this as desert island duties, is a okay. phrase that, that could be applied to Kant's thinking here. So you have duties, regardless of any other people around you, have duties yourself to apply to your own life. That conflicts with, a, with an attitude around morality of thinking that things that one does, that one consents to doing, uh, there's no problem with that. So if one consents to harming oneself, doing something that's potentially damaging, um, that can't be judged as unethical. What, what would Kant say to, to that, that viewpoint, that modern viewpoint? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the Desert Island Duties, that was a paper written by my supervisor, Jens Timmerman, and I was, I was thinking about it and, and engaging with it. So it was the idea, what if you were doing something to yourself, but you are so strong that you don't get harmed by it? So you can drink as much as you as you want, like Socrates. Socrates said to to be able to have been able to drink a lot, and he was never drunk. Everyone was drunk, but Socrates was there, you know. Um, would the, so the idea is that if that is not impairing you morally, would there be an issue with this kind of thing? I think it's it's hard to draw the line, right? Because we all when we enjoy ourselves, we are, in a certain sense, making a use of our animal nature for the sake of enjoyment. And there is a point where we need to draw the line and say, okay, now this is going too far. Now I, this is no longer acceptable the way I am making use of my person. Right? I think the argument for this desert island duty would be to ask, but that would be as I said, there is no recipe for that, for establishing that. Whether the treatment of your person is compatible with your dignity, whether you are reducing yourself to your inclinations. Because I think that the, the greatest idea, and a central idea of Kant's moral theory, is that idea that morality, the capacity for morality, raises us above animality. So it opens up a a way of life and a way of valuing ourselves that um, raises us, as I said, gives us, creates this spacious, a special status. So I, I remember there is this famous quote by Oscar Wilde, like, we are in the gutter, but some are looking at the stars. And that reminds me a lot of Kant, because he thinks that, you know, this looking at the stars is like thinking of the moral law in us, in a sense. 
So why can we look at the stars when we are in the gutter? Because we have that rational vocation, right? Because we are more than just our instincts, right? So perhaps Kant would say, uh, we are in the gutter and we can also raise ourselves <laughs> from the gutter. <laughs> yeah, does yeah. it answer your question, Barla? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose, that, what would he say, though, to someone who says, look, I'm happy in the gutter, you know, Ooh, I'm, I, 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 this is where I'm choosing to be. I want to live this lifestyle. Yeah. You might think it's self-destructive, but, you know, in my yeah. view, life is short. I don't care if I burn out, you know, quickly. Um, yeah. Would he say, I mean, I suppose you might argue, are you really consent to that? Are you, are you, are you, is that really the life you want? But what, what, what maybe would Kant reply to that person? Okay, that's a very good question because while we have this talk about dignity, we also have Kant's conception that happiness is something that cannot be prescribed from outside. So what happiness is, is what you take happiness to be for you. So people actually have a right to form their own conception of happiness. So it could be that uh, the, in the example you posed, we have someone wondering about a way of life, if this way of life is compatible with moral status. Or we could have someone just questioning the way of life as a conception of happiness. So Kant actually thinks that this is up to individuals to formulate this conception. Now, formulating this conception of happiness will be, will be something like imaginative exercise. You try to imagine what would make you happy. You try to figure out. And you go through your life testing these conceptions. Right? This is what it means when Kant says when, uh, that happiness is indeterminate. So you try to figure out there is no answer either from inside or from outside. You try and by error and uh, you revise this conception and you try to find what would be happiness for yourself. So perhaps someone who likes the gutter more <laughs> than being above the gutter <laughs> would to a certain extent actually have a right to it um, if that is part of her conception of happiness. As I said, drawing the line is very difficult. Um, we would have to be able to say she is destroying her capacity for rationality. She is reducing herself to mere animality. And that would be um, a violation of a duty to the self, but not just a choice of lifestyle. That would not violate duty per se. Yeah. And that brings on to the broader question of happiness and how Kant addresses it. It's a, it's a subject you're researching for a book. I mean, in, in very broad terms, what can Kant teach us about happiness? He can teach about happiness that it is a difficult exercise. He tends to be a bit pessimistic about it in the sense that I think we all experience that, uh, the fact that when we achieve the things we value so much and we work so hard for them, then we are disappointed at the end. And this is something that Kant talks about because we don't know what would make us happy, what will make us happy. We have to guess. And this is why we have to conceive something like plan, right? We, we, we form a conception of happiness. So we try to figure out what are the things that I value in my life? Uh, what should I, should I try to give priority in my life? What should I try to realize? But of course, 
this will then with time turn into an exercise of self-knowledge. You will achieve what you want or perhaps in the process of pursuing those ends, you realize that this is not really what you needed or what you wanted. It would require uh, omniscience to, to, to know uh, what will, would make you happy. First of all, because we don't have direct access to ourselves, so we have to interpret our, our needs. So our desires, our needs, this is a matter of personal interpretation. We try to come up with a conception of what we desire or what we need, and this is hard. And on the other hand, our choices have consequences that are outside our control. It can be that our, you know, my having chosen an academic career will have lots of um, consequences that I could not foresee and that will impact my happiness. Um, perhaps I am unhappy in my department or perhaps um, this causes me to neglect some important relationship and so on. So it's a very complex whole uh, uh, that cannot guarantee your happiness, right? But we want it, and it is very important for us. We want to be happy. But I think that morality counteracts this in a very um, helpful way, because it seems like the more we try to be happy, the less we achieve it. If we try too hard, uh, the harder it is actually to be happy. And it seems to be that morality brings a certainty into life, that happiness itself, the pursuit of happiness, cannot provide. And this is the certainty to know that if you do the right thing, right, it is the right thing, no matter the consequences. So for happiness, what matters is the consequences, whether you get that pleasure, whether you get that satisfaction. But happiness, uh, but morality, if you or uh, respect the moral law, if you are committed um, to, to, to following the moral law, you are doing the right thing. It doesn't matter the consequences. And that creates something that is stable, that is valuable, that is in your power, no matter what. I think this is my view of it. <laughs> he might put a lot of people in the happiness industry out of business because <laughs> morality tends to get written out a bit of, of modern happiness. Um, those popular approaches to the subject. If, if I might ask one final issue around um, Kant's uh, kind of concept of morality, because if I understand Kant correctly, he, he um, describes what, anything that's a natural instinct can't be moral. So if, you, if you're naturally inclined to do something, uh, you can't have a moral duty to that. So moral yeah. duties apply to stuff that you don't really want to do or aren't inclined <laughs> to doing. Um, but does, does that rub up against um, kind of a modern contemporary kind of examination of morality, where morality comes from, and it, through examining evolutionary biology and almost matching natural dispositions to, to moral dispositions? Mm -hmm. And there's, a, there's maybe a lot of work being done at the moment on that. Would Kant sort of look at that and say, look, you're, you're on a fool's errand here. You're not going to be able to discover morality by looking at the, the baboon, as, as uh, Charles Darwin once suggested, looking at, at natural um, inclinations? Yeah, this is a very good question. I think to a certain extent, I think this kind of research is very useful. Uh, I, I do not deny that there, is, there are instincts towards preserving the species, and that is seen as some form of 
proto-morality. So you, you sacrifice yourself for the sake of the species. Um, but trying to reduce uh, morality to this kind of instinct will not work for Kant, because he thinks that, okay, morality is ration, rational, so it's about rationality. Of course, we can tell a scientific story about the development of our rational capacities. But I think that once we are there, once we are able to understand our relations um, with others in terms of equal reciprocal relations, and this is the main idea behind Kant's theory, that we are equals and we should treat ourselves in, in ways that are reciprocal, that can be reciprocated and willed by others, by everyone. Um, I think that oversteps the natural boundary. There we are within the domain of reason. So a reason that has, of course, emerged out of an evolutionary process, but once, once it is there, once it is created, it creates its, wrong, its own rules, it creates your, its own reality. So morality, for Kant, as Kant conceives, is the reality of reason, right? It's a game created by reason. And we are these strange animals with reason. I think we cannot deny that. But just reduce that to inclinations will not explain why we think we have obligations to do certain things, uh, even when we have inclinations to the opposite. Because nature in us pulls in both directions. We may also want to protect someone, but we may also want to hurt that person. So this is the idea why, in, in Kant's theory, we cannot rely in those inclinations. It is certainly not against our nature because we are rational animals. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.